This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Try to put on the show. You had a bad day at the office. Coffee wasn't warm. TPS reports filed late. If you're if you're on offense in the offense, it's I don't know four fumbles, couple interceptions, a rousingly unenthusiastic response by Pete Carroll saying, "Yeah, the offense wasn't real good today." Dude, yesterday, yeah, it was a tough watch, and as you hear it from Pete Carroll here, it, yeah, <laughs> they gotta clean it up when they get back out on the field on Friday. Today was a hard day for the offense. You know, we, we, we didn't handle the ball very well. We had some, some ball handling things that we didn't do well. So, um, nah, you know, I don't think this was a great day for us to improve. I think we've got we to come back and bounce back from this day. It wasn't just the routine stuff like fumbles and interceptions, Danny. I mean, shoot, they, they were having issues with snap exchanges, with the snaps actually being good. Russ was holding the football on a little bit too long. There was a moment in practice where Bobby Wagner even was telling Russ, hey, some, at some point, you got to throw it. So you add all of that up. It's one day at the office. I don't think it's anything to overreact to, but it does highlight that it's going to take some time for this offense to get to where it needs to be. It shouldn't be a surprise. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And actually, I, I would expect this offense to be better the second half of the season than it is the first half. I would anticipate there's going to be some growing pains. You've got a quarterback that's been in the same offense for nine years, Right. Yes, Brian Schottenheimer came in and replaced Daryl Bevel, but as we've talked about, when, when Schottenheimer came in, they kept the majority of the playbook. Like 70% is what was estimated the same. Russell's going to be controlling a new offense again, and it's under a coordinator who hasn't called plays before. This, this shouldn't be a surprise that there's going to be some grinding of gears early. Hopefully they get it all out of the way in training camp, but really, like I would say that I, I would expect this team to finish better than it starts on offense. It's not necessarily one of two possibilities, you know, because the way that the Seahawks season ended last year was the complete opposite, where they started off amazing and then they finished and they they hit a wall. That's not how, I mean, it's not like it's only going to happen one of two ways, but we would all prefer, obviously, for it to happen the second way. And if it takes until the last quarter of the season, I'm, I'm fine with that. So to expect anything, to expect perfection, I guess, right away, even with a great quarterback, it, it, sometimes it takes even longer than a year. I mean, look at Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur. That first season together was not good. And honestly, outside of the playoff victory that the Packers had against the Seahawks in Green they Bay. They were 13-3, though, right? didn't but, they? But look at what the offense was. You know, the offense down the stretch of that season, Aaron Rodgers looked somewhat uncomfortable, was That's throwing true. the football That's away true. a lot more. So, I mean, that's, I think, part of the reason that they drafted Jordan Love, but then the next offseason, things started to click, and then, of course, he puts together an unbelievable MVP-caliber uh, season last year. So, it takes time. And I, I, I think, Danny, nothing's more important than Russ rewiring things a little bit. So, I think that that's always going to be a part of his game, him holding on to the football a little bit longer than necessary. Yeah, it, I I want him to keep that as part of his game. I don't want it to be as much of his game. I want him to pick exactly. his spots there. And and especially, if there's one thing I could say, I want him to know, okay, our offense has ground its gears a little bit. Our, our offense, we need some first downs here. I want him to be able to shift into a singles hitter. 
Like, that's what I want. Okay, like, how you got two strikes, strikes, swing for contact. I, I want him to be able to do that as a quarterback rather than sometimes it feels when they start grinding their gears or they're not going anything, it's almost like they become more focused on the big play. Hey, one big play will loosen everything up. We get one right. big play and that we're, we're firing away. I might go so far as to say it's a good thing if there's some challenges and some struggles. My, my dad used to tell me when I skied, if you're not falling, you're not learning. If if you're going down the mountain, if you're going down the slope, and you're not you're not falling down, one of wedge. two th- one of one of two things is happening. You're on you're not on a steep enough slope. You're not challenging yourself enough with the terrain, or you're not taking enough chances with the way you ski. That falling down is part is part of learning. And until you're an expert skier, you should be falling down because that shows that you're kind of at that edge of pushing yourself to what you could do. I'm not saying I want Russ to fall down. But I don't look at a day like yesterday as some sort of bad apocalyptic sign of like, oh my gosh, they're in over their head. I expect there's going to be some stumbles as he learns a new offense. There's a balance to getting the ball out quickly and taking care of it at the same time. And Russ has been, for the majority of his career, less so last year, but one of, I think, the best in the league ever at taking care of the football and that's a huge part of the game and I think that's one of the things that Pete Carroll likes the most about him is that he does not regularly turn things over so there's going to be I would imagine some hesitation when he's out there and he sees things that he hasn't traditionally worked with I will say I mean anything to Tyler Lockett's working out pretty well in the short range but it really feels like Russ is forcing himself to try and get every single short and intermediate part of this offense involved, and it's taking maybe a little bit of a longer time than it needs to at this point or later on in the year for him to see some of the things that he's looking for. Good. Yeah, good. I feel the same I, way. I, legit, I, I think this actually could be good for them, and I don't think it's worth you know freaking out about, but it was ugly. <laughs> Let's go to Shane Waldron. This is Seattle's offensive coordinator. He he gave a press conference after practice yesterday. Here was what he had to say about the offense's performance. We know nothing's more important than the ball, right? But there's those ebbs and flows in the practice. Like I said, the defense is doing a great job. You know, they're making us better by their approach every single day. I mean, these guys are chasing us 50 yards down the field, punching at the ball, you know, just making us work so hard throughout the course of every practice. And they've had a few tips, and sometimes those tips, you know, you never know which way they go. Today they went their way, you know, but we'll bounce back the next day and, and be ready to take care of the ball, knowing, hey, it's, it's the number one priority, and it's the number one priority in the league. We've taken the approach that, hey, this is a positive sign in terms of growth, pushing yourself, and you might have a few stumbles. There's a second, there would be a second way to interpret what happened yesterday or a second concern to lodge, and that is you have an offensive coordinator who has not called plays before. And having him learn on the job, while that might be inevitable to some respect, that's not going to be an ideal situation for a team that is set up to win right now. Right, This is not a rebuilding situation. Is there going to be some learning on the job that Shane Waldron has to do as, as he's in charge of the offense for the first time? Yeah, there's definitely going to be some learning because there's more hands-on. But you know, he has not been entirely removed from this process as Gerald Everett, who of course was there with him, had highlighted and, and, and we heard from him yesterday. And I think, I think Pete understands that too. But this part is definitely a learning experience for Shane Waldron, and it's about time management and prioritizing specific parts of situational football at this time of year. Because, I mean, some things 
as far as tempo and rhythm, okay, you can do that down to down. But when we're talking about specific situations, third and short, red zone, stuff like that, how much time are you going to focus on one? How much time are you going to focus on another? And right now it feels like they're, you know, trying to spread an equal part of practice to all of those things. We'll see if that actually pans out and plays out in a, in a good way for Waldron. But that part is a, a big part. Time management for a coach. Here is Pete Carroll talking about Shane Waldron having never called plays before and sort of what, what that process is going to be like for him. For the most part, we get so much work done, and these guys have been doing it their whole life. It doesn't mean that they haven't, you know, they haven't called stuff in, in their brain and haven't called stuff in scrimmages and games. Shane's called, called stuff before at, at their place, you know, at, at, in L.A., and uh, preseason for sure, and, and so he, he seems very comfortable with it. But, you know, you still got to get out there, and you got to get in all the situations, and he hasn't been able to do that yet. Um, we'll do everything we can uh, to present the opportunities to get that done, but um, there'll still be some newness. You know, I'm, I, don't, I don't know how he can avoid that. One of the other things is I don't even know if they're set on whether he's going to be in the box or on the field. I, I, I saw in Shane Waldron's answers that he's going to start out on the field, that, that that'll be where he is for the first preseason game, but they haven't, they haven't come to a full-time decision. I think he's going to try it out a little bit to decide where he's most comfortable. It feels like the box would be the best place to actually see everything and make adjustments, but it also feels like on the field, too, that's where you're going to be better able to communicate with your players on a down-to-down basis, because otherwise, I mean, what are you doing? You're on the telephone just with the quarterback, I would imagine, for most of it, and also talking to your other coaches via headset. So, yeah, different. Do you want to communicate, or do you want to sit and watch everything? It's Danny and Gallant. We got a lot coming up today, including Jerry DePoto, Mariners general manager, is going to be with us a little bit less busy Thursday for him this week compared to last week. But we're looking forward to talking to him at 8.30. Right now, it's front page news. This, this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 7.10, get what you need to know to start your day right now. The Mariners headed to New York City after wrapping up the series finale against the Rays. They lost 4-3 to three yesterday. Breakfast baseball. Or is it brunch baseball? 10 a.m. starts more brunch than breakfast. I like to call it brunch. Yes, it was brunch. Brunch baseball. They lose 4-3. to three. They've now lost their last three one-run games. That was after they'd been so good. So good. 23-8 and eight in one-run games prior to that. Expect a little bit of coming back to earth. Now they go into New York still think the Yankees are going to be missing two of their starting pitchers. We've got Montgomery on Friday, who's currently on the injured list with COVID-19, and uh, Garrett Cole, who is scheduled to start on Sunday. They're also going to be missing their third baseman, Gio Urshela, who is out with a hamstring injury. But the Yankees have been hot. As far as the last series, glass half full, I mean, were you going to go 7-0 against the defending you American went, League You won two out of three on the road against the defending AL champs. You take that every time and twice on Sunday. Right. 6-1 and one is, is, is not bad. And it, honestly, you take a look at what happened in that game. If not for the Rays Stadium, Tropicana Field, a field that I like, but mainly because it was so cheap to go to when I used to live in St. Pete, Florida. It's probably why Jared Kelnick missed that ball that he dove for. That's at least what Scott Server said afterwards. And you're right. The Yankees are hot despite all of these injuries right now. This is a really interesting stretch for not just the Mariners, but for the Yankees, for the Blue Jays. Boston has all of a sudden fallen back into the swing of things, too, because they lost five in a row before a win last night. And Oakland, of course, too. They had a nice dramatic walk-off win against the San Diego Padres, so uh, they, they take another game ahead of the Seattle Mariners. 
the front page. Football, it's back. Sort of. This is the most disappointing game in every schedule. Yeah, right? but it's, it's back. It's the Hall of Fame game, but it's not. It's exciting for about five minutes. I think we all came to an agreement. Danny, Mora, who is back from vacation, and me, we were all thinking to ourselves, you know what? The Hall of Fame game, it's fun. And this one's going to feature the Pittsburgh Steelers and Dallas Cowboys. You see the uniforms. You see the field. You're- Dak Prescott going to be there? No. <laughs> I, I mean, come on. It's over. <laughs> what are we doing? Here's the, the one thing that I'm excited to see is a professional football game that is packed. And I would imagine, unless there's some Ohio sh- restrictions that I'm unaware of, that this stadium is going to be fully packed. What does that mean in a preseason game where it's neutral and it's Cowboys and Steelers fans? I don't know. I mean, shoot, probably all of them are going to be bandwagoners of some of some kind from all over the country. But whatever the case, I'll enjoy it for five minutes before I decide to change and go back to watching uh, Outer Banks on Netflix. <laughs> New York Post. What is Outer Banks? It's like this really cheesy uh, teen dramedy about some kid that discovers treasure in North Carolina. Is it a reality show? No. I can't figure out what it is. It's like a teen soap opera. God, somebody was referencing that, and then they were arguing how often those kids shower. And I was like, what's going on? They don't shower very often. Uh, John B., that's the main New character. York po- the New York Post headline, what to consider when betting on NFL preseason games. I, I got one word for that. Don't. Rehab. Oh. No, rehab. Yeah, that too. <laughs> what to consider if you're betting on NFL preseason games, rehab. What's the what's the worst thing that you can that you can gamble on where you really need to do that? Because preseason's pretty low. But I mean, we're talking Little League World Series? Yeah, Little League games. And right. I've worked with someone who's done that. Oh my goodness. Me yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Didn't make it easier when he was like, you know what's sick? Blah, blah, blah. You're like, yeah, that's right. That is sick. That is sick. <laughs> that is front page news. We now go to the professor. We buckle up for our morning drive with John Clayton. John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's morning drive with Danny and Gallant. Professor, Deshaun Watson was not at practice for Houston the last couple of days after, you know, serving as a safety, I think a running back as well. And per Chris Trapasso, talks with the Eagles and Texans, I guess, are heating up about a potential trade. Do you feel like Deshaun Watson would want to go to Philly? Because he does have that no trade clause. Well, he doesn't want to go to uh, stay in Houston. So, yes, I think he'd be happy to go to Philadelphia. I know they're not going to be a good team this year, but he wants out of Houston. And this is his chance to get out of Houston. And I don't see him practicing until he gets some kind of a trade. And right now, I don't see the Denver Broncos being in a position to be able to match what Philadelphia is going to be able to do because they don't have the extra draft choices. Now, because, again, Philadelphia has that extra first-round pick next year from that San Francisco-Miami three-way trade. They've got a second-round pick for Carson Wentz. Now, that could turn into a first if, indeed, uh, he does play 70% of the downs or more, which right now is in question because he's out 5 to 12 weeks with the foot surgery. But, no, I think that uh, things are heating up, and it's been really kind of heating up, I think, probably for the last couple weeks. 
John, there's part of me that believes very strongly. Actually, it's most of me that believes this, that the entire return of Deshaun Watson, where he reports to training camp, he still hasn't done a media session. And my understanding is that's because he's not the starting quarterback right now. They've got him even seeing some time at safety. They're also saying he's injured is to kind of test the temperature to see how mad people were going to be if he started playing football again. And I think that the relative reaction has been that, okay, people aren't that mad, and so now they're going to go along with football business with him, and the Texans and and Eagles are going to see if they can work a trade. And if so, he goes there. I'm not sure if he's going to face discipline for for what happened, the the civil allegations that he's facing. And there are two – 10 criminal complaints, though nothing, no charges have been filed. Yeah, I mean, I think right now he's going to be able to play this year. Now, I don't know about next year, but one of the things that, you know, and again, Roger Goodell on these things, is there's never any consistency. You know, like, for example, mm-hmm. you go back to 2011 with Ben Roethlisberger. I had a woman in Georgia accuse him of uh, sexual uh, problems. Assault, and, yeah. Assault, yeah. And so it's like, uh, and so he got suspended six games, even though there was no criminal charges, and they cut it down to four. But in this case, I mean, nothing's happening on these cases until next year. He's not getting deposed until uh, February 22nd of next year. The cases of the 22 cases, they're probably going to start in May through July. And I think the NFL would like to be in a position to say, okay, now that we got the results of these uh, lawsuits, now we'll make a decision. So if there's going to be some kind of uh exempt list or anything else it very well could be more next year than this year so i think that watson does have a chance to play this year and if he does that's why philadelphia's interested in making the move because remember it's like you know they've already gone before and when michael vick came out of jail they signed him and Howie Roseman is aggressive. I think he's willing to take chances on different things. And so he's willing, I think, right now, the general manager, to take a chance and get uh, Watson and see how they do. While we're on quarterbacks who might be in the last year with their team, Aaron Rodgers was asked about his relationship with Packers GM Brian Gutekunst. He said, it's a work in progress. We're all under the assumption it's Rodgers' last season in Green Bay. Is there any, any chance, we're talking 1% here, John, of – the Packers and Rodgers being able to go together next year? Would it take a Super Bowl victory? Is there any chance of them perhaps sticking around, sticking together yeah. for another year? There's always a chance, but I just think that as long as the general manager's there, and also I, I think he's also mad at Mark Murphy that he's mm-hmm. not going to stay. You know, because, again, you know, when he started uh, with that very pointed press conference, uh, what he ended up doing uh, at the start of the season or start of training camp was, uh, you know, point out the fact that it's like, well, look at Charles Woodson and you look at this. And you, you went back way before this general manager. And uh, that that points. Well, it's like, well, who else is there? I mean, Ted Thompson, unfortunately, is no longer with us. And so that would point to Mark Murphy, too. So I think it's a Mark Murphy good account type thing and so in the end i think that uh, this is his last season and i think he is ready to move on john i saw a post from jimmy graham this morning it was a message from the nfl players association that they sent out regarding uh covid testing and sort of protocols going forward and it was basically it was summarizing the the data of what they've seen which is that so far at training camp, I think there's been more than 2,000 players that have been tested, and I think it's 65 have tested positive. 33 of those were unvaccinated. 32 had been vaccinated. They were pointing out 
that that the Delta variant is is creating a situation where players who have been vaccinated are contracting and potentially passing along COVID. But I was struck by the the number. So, I mean, a conservative estimate right now is eighty percent of the league is vaccinated. Eighty percent of the league has had the same that pool of players has had the same number of positive COVID tests as the twenty percent that's unvaccinated. So it's basically a four to one ratio of if if you're vaccinated. You're you're four times less likely or if you are unvaccinated, you're four times more likely to end up contracting covid, which hopefully will convince some more players to to get vaccinated because the league is clearly concerned about what might happen with outbreaks in locker rooms. Yeah. And of course, I mean, right now there's uh, been probably more than 80 players that have been on the COVID list with either contact or positive tests. And you're right about that. But the one thing that the league came out and said yesterday, he says of the vaccinated players, they're all asymptomatic, no problems with any of them other than the fact that they did test positive. So, uh, you know, and that's why it's, I think we're up to almost 90% right now for the league being vaccinated. And you look at what happened with the uh, Washington football team, you know, they were sitting there and they were down at the very low, end with uh you know six sixty percent and then of course and they're getting seven players on the COVID list most of those testing positive and now they're about 84 percent and so i think that they need to continue to ramp up and get as many vaccinations as they can i mean look what happened with the uh minnesota vikings you know the minnesota vikings kellen mond ended up testing positive kirk cousins goes on the COVID list uh third string quarterback goes on the COVID list now but I think uh, Cousins is going to be back on the field today. But, uh, you know, it's not good. I mean, for Vikings now have, at least as of yesterday, six players on the COVID list. So, again, it's, it may, it's more advisable to go ahead and get the vaccinations as opposed to not. Professor, one last question for me. This has to do with a couple of young quarterbacks, two rookie quarterbacks from last season. Zach Taylor, Bengals head coach, said there's no cause for panic as Joe Burrow and since these offense have been struggling to open things up, my question is how big is the gap between Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, who's coming off of a pretty impressive rookie season? I mean, uh, Joe Burrow played great uh, before he got hurt. I mean, the problem is they had no offensive line, and he got hit more than any quarterback in the league and ended up getting injured for the season. But, I mean, I think the big thing is that Zach Taylor had him pass the ball too much. I mean, he was throwing it like, like 40 times a game. And for a bad team like that, that's not good. And the fact that uh, they couldn't block and he was getting hit and destroyed and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, you know, certainly Justin Burrow, I mean, uh, Justin Herbert played better without any question because I mean, he was rookie of the year. But uh, also he's on a better football team. He is the professor, John Clayton. We always appreciate it. We'll look forward to catching up with you tomorrow as we wrap up the week. OK, sounds good. All right, that is John. You can follow his coverage on 710sports.com and also usually hear him in the afternoon with Wyman and Bob, though that's a little bit different this week because of East Coast baseball with your Mariners. All right, coming up next, we haven't heard much about Russ's long-term future, and that has someone asking questions. We'll tell you who that is next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The Mariners did lose yesterday. They start a series against the hated Yankees tonight. And they are right in the thick of the wild card race. They're still alive. What's interesting, Danny, is the stretch ahead for them and for some of the other teams that are hanging around them. 
Because right now, they, New York and Toronto, are all in this sort of group together where I feel like you could see one of these teams surge. You could see another one completely fall off. One of these teams is going to have a legitimate chance at the wild card at the end of the year. The Mariners have to, have to, I would say, take three or four, I think, from New York if they want to keep themselves in this. If they go two and two, they're four and three in this stretch of road games. They're just under five hundred. What five and six for the eleven game road trip where they went on the road? I, 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 I don't think they can lose the series. I'm not sure they have to win it though. I'm not sure they have to win the four game series. I'm curious as to what animosity levels are going to be between these teams because Kendall Graveman was one of the guys who seemed to be most adamant against the trivialities of the New York Yankees the last time that these two teams played. Remember at the end of that game where there was a bit of a stare down because Runyon Odor had to dance around a baseball after turning around for a bunt. And then uh, DJ De La Mayhew, uh, was hit on the jersey by a baseball and thought that he had been uh, assaulted. It'll be fun. I love series like this. If you're a Mariners fan right now, this is there's a little bit of house money that you're playing with. If you don't finish ahead of the Blue Jays and the Yankees, if you if you don't get this wild card spot, if you're not one of the teams that's that's in position to potentially catch, you're probably going to have to catch the A's as well. If if you don't get it, you can look at it and say, "Man, this wasn't our year because we didn't make the moves and these other teams have been aggressive and they've tried to get in front." Like you feel really good about that. You look at they the Mariners didn't make that push of we have to make the playoffs this year. The Blue Jays and especially the Yankees did. Yes, right? they, they did. geared up. They geared up. Even the A's, what they traded for, traded for Starling Castro. Like you, you've got these teams have all made moves of now is the time. And the Mariners are like, hey, we're encouraged with where we are. We're going to make some moves that we think help this year, but also down the road. Next year's the year where we really might be buyers, where we really might be in the rental market. You mentioned Oakland. Oakland's going to play Texas, Cleveland, and then Texas again before they actually start playing some good teams, including the White Sox, the Giants, and the Seattle Mariners. So it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out in the wild card race, and we'll definitely keep you posted on all of that right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. So everyone, when we look at the Green Bay Packers situation, we just talked about it with the professor. We all feel that Aaron Rodgers is probably going to be playing for another team next season. But could Russell Wilson be also heading down that same road? And if you look at what's happening in Green Bay, clearly things are at a point where, you know, it's pretty pretty clear that Rodgers is pretty anti the organization. Where with the Seahawks, it's one of these situations where we thought it was pretty clear, and then everything has been painted with all sorts of paint after the fact to perhaps cover up what actually is taking place. So do you think, Danny, that things are as resolved as maybe we're seeing out in the open between these two parties? I don't think there is current hostility. I don't think one side wants to make the other look bad, where Aaron Rodgers clearly wants to make the Packers look bad. He, w- he wants the Packers to be uncomfortable. Like, that's, that's, that's the, the, the MO that he has, is to try to make this as uncomfortable as possible for, for the Packers. I don't think that's happening in Seattle. I think everybody's on the same page for 2021. My question has to do with the long-term trajectory of the relationship. Did everything get patched up after what happened in February? Like, is, is, that, is that really, is that really, and, and I say this mostly on Russell's end. Say Seattle has the same thing happen again. Say Seattle ends up going 11-6 and six 
And even they win a wild card round playoff game, but they lose in, in the next round of the playoffs. Like they have three different times over the past six seasons. Does Russ say, okay, man, we're almost there. We got to fire it up and bring it back again. Or do we see an even more emphatic statement from him in the offseason? I don't know the answer to that question. It would be about, if he makes an emphatic statement, a push for more control, probably. And that was something... He's not going to get more control, though. He's not going to. You're right. You're right. right. That's done. Like, that was asked and answered this past season. If he doesn't get that control, then what does he do? Because the thing that he would have to be willing to do, I think, is sit out. And, I mean, ultimately... Whatever. Or ask for a trade, right? Right. You could come out and flat out say, I want to be traded. That's true, but if you come out and say that you want to be traded, is the organization going to trade you? Are they going to bend the knee so quickly? Maybe not, but if you're the player, that's that's the only thing you have. And Aaron didn't even go that far, right? Right, he didn't. Like he did, Aaron did not go. Deshaun Watson has gone that far. Even though he hasn't got out in front of a camera and said it, everybody knows that he has asked to be traded. Or like Xavier Howard is doing right now in Miami, like that's that's the next step. I, if if you're Russell and you decide, okay, I'm not going to get closer to a championship here, and this is championships are the most important part. It's time for for me to take a step. Th- that step is clearly asking for a trade and really not caring what position that puts the team in. We always talk about letting Russ cook. LeVar Arrington had some interesting takes, former NFL linebacker, about Russ and about one of the things that probably is better for the Seahawks in his mind going into this coming year. When they had the balance, this team did well. It performed well. When Russ was fully given all of the tools to go into the kitchen, cook it up, the the ingredients, all that good stuff, uh, he burnt it. It didn't come out well. It, it looked like it should have been casserole, but it was supposed to be something totally different. It tastes like casserole. You know how that works. They tried to tell you something. They tried to tell you it was something that it wasn't. Is that actually what happened last year? That was Shannon Sharp's take, right? I remember I remember Shannon using the exact same thing that Russ cooked or burned the meal. Yeah. So, yeah. This one's a casserole, though. It's different. More original. Um, no, I don't think that's what happened. I, I do think that when the, Russ had a larger say in the offense, it did end up high-centered in the middle of the, the season. I do think that the offense ended up running into a ditch. I'm not sure that was entirely Russ's fault. The fact that they changed offensive coordinators certainly points to the fact that it wasn't entirely, or at least the organization felt that making a change would be able to help things. But yeah, I, I, I don't think it was entirely Russ's fault. I don't either. It's a whole spread of things that went into it. And we all, I think, feel that way to an extent. This idea, too, that they gave everything to Russ and that he completely failed. I, I feel like you have to take a look at just what the offense had become down the stretch. And their inability to run the football is one of the reasons that they did decide to throw the football as much as they did. Even though- How resolved do you think the issue is? Like, how resolved? Do you think Russ is, is completely at peace with what happened, or do you think he's got simmering questions he, about his long-term must, future? He must have some hesitation, trepidation, some questions about what's going to happen next. And who wouldn't, honestly, after the way that things ended this past year? And I would imagine even right now, too, as you try to install this offense after a rough day at training camp, you're probably still having some of those questions. It's Danny Agalon. He's Danny O'Neill. and Paul Galan on 710 ESPN Seattle. You think Joe Judge is a hard-o? Well... An old favorite of this program who is trying to start things in his way, his way or the highway, he might be taking things a little bit further as far as hard-o coaches go. You'll hear about that next. 
You're listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Not much that I like more than watching and gauging how how different coaches are going to deal with, whether you call it the pressures of the NFL. How are you going to deal with coaching an NFL team? I think it's a different, it might as well be a different job from coaching college. And I've really enjoyed and now remain adamant that I think that New York Giants team smells like a 5-12 and team. They smell like four or five wins after the Joe Judge punishment tour the other day for fighting in practice. Is that exclusive of, though, the coaching situation with their quarterback? I mean, regardless of whether the coach... If they had a better quarterback, they they might go 500. If they had a better quarterback, they might go 500. That's not going to work with him, though. Like, I, I really, and maybe I'll be proven wrong. I felt the exact same way when Mike Singletary, when Singletary singled out Vernon Davis and sent him off the field, I was like, that's not going to work. That's absolutely not going to work in an NFL locker room. And, like, it feels good to be right. Like, it feels really good to be right. I don't, I do not think Joe Judge is going to work. And I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put Urban Meyer in the same category. Have you have you seen what Urban Meyer's doing at Jacksonville Jaguars practice? Outline it to the people. Something he calls winners and losers. And what he does is he sets up one-on-one matchups. The example that I read in the story was it was a pass block no, it was a special teams blocking drill between Chris Manhurts and Tim Tebow. One-on-one blocking drills happen all the time. What's different here is they announce a winner. Winner Manhurts. Winner Tebow. And the coaches keep track of it. And Urban's point is that this is this is like an objective. What's your record? Yes, don't don't tell me how good you are. Tell me what your record is. Don't tell me how fast your forty time is. Tell me what your record is in these winners and losers. Here's Urban Meyer himself ex- explaining a little bit more about his his winners and losers game. We have some winner loser opportunities. You know, we're going to have to make a decision. Uh, a big roster is going to go to a smaller roster, and I just I think to be fair to players. You know, I just, we all have so much respect for that. This is a way guys make a living. And I don't believe in subjectivity. I believe in what's your record. Every man's got a record. What is it? You you are what your record are. If you lose a lot, but you, you know, have a lot of potential, that's not real good. It sounds okay. Here's the problem. Are those, are those, are those records really indicative of, of what you're going to be doing in a game is a one-on-one blocking matchup indicative of what's going to happen. You see one-on-one blocking matchups like in pass protection drills, those are kind of slanted toward the defense, right? Like in a game situation, the offensive line is working together as a unit. I I, I think that this is Harry High School stuff. I think that this is Harry High School trying to boil something down and get guys to 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 try their hardest in mono a mono situations that don't actually resemble what wins football games. In a way, though, I, I, I look at it and I see that there's a Spartan element to it. And I feel like that is something that still should be a part of football. That is a sport that that is how it has always been. And I know traditionalists are sometimes mocked and laughed at, but I, I, I listen to what Urban said there. I don't think that's going to be the end-all, be-all for evaluation. I think it's a, another useful tool. And... I felt like what he was trying to explain there is that if a guy ends up losing, he'll have a little extra clarity as far as what's taking place. And I will say, too, that sometimes in these drills, these pass-rushing one-on-ones, sometimes it's not 100% clear who won. Yep. Now, that could also work against them. 
most times it's not 100% clear who won. That That's my issue. It's not that having tests of strength or really deciding or trying to keep an objective record is a bad idea. It's that these are really poor tools to do that. And I'll take it a step further. This works when you have 85 scholarship players and each year you're bringing in 20 guys, 10 of whom are among the best athletes in the entire country. When you're recruiting at Florida and you're recruiting at Ohio State, this works much better when you can say, if I hurt that guy's feelings and he tunes out on me, who cares because I've got someone that's pretty much as good to step in and take its place. It's much harder to do in the NFL. It, it is much harder to do in the NFL to to treat players as disposable like that. Well, yeah, it's it's the young players are the ones that are the most impressionable. The ones who have been there for a while, for the most part, they've probably seen some situations where it is not, as you have described, Harry High School or the Patriot Way somewhere else. You know, it's been probably something that's relatively compared to college easier i would imagine practice wise and i think that yeah you're right from that perspective if you have a older team they are not going to buy into a lot of this stuff and that's why you see joe looney on the new york giants in Quit. a matter of days going from saying yeah i get why we run laps to two days later nope, retiring done. former cowboys lineman with the giants who the day after joe judge had everybody out there running because they got into a fight was like thanks no the other thing is, does it, what the worst thing you can do as a football coach is cut a guy or conversely choose to keep a guy over a trait that doesn't really win football games. Yeah, I'm with you there. R- right? Like, that's the dumbest thing to do. It, and, there's got to be and, other stuff, though, right? It can't, it, this, if, if this is the one thing that they are doing, then, yeah, that's not great. But I would imagine there's other things that they are doing that are similar to this, probably. Maybe. Who knows? I'm telling you that I don't see this sort of stuff from coaches. And when when they do do stuff like this, I immediately think that guy's not going to work. Like Urban Meyer, when Urban came to the, the league, one thing that I thought, he's got a real chance to succeed because he's never had a specific type of quarterback. He's one with all sorts of different quarterbacks. And I think that flexibility is really important in the NFL. I, I think that if you are a person who is, it's got to be done my way and we have to run my system, you can do that in college because you can recruit such an overwhelming talent advantage. You can't do it in the NFL. Like, you have to be able to make the most of what you got. Everything in the NFL, NFL is like stock car racing compared to a Formula One in co- college football. The NFL, everything is sought to equalize the, the amount of talent you have. You have to be able to do more with the same. This is the sort of stuff where I'm like, he's going to do less with the same. I got to say, though, wherever he's been, and this includes the spots without resources like Bowling Green in Utah, he has made it work. And that's why I can't quite put the doubt on Urban Meyer that so many are, especially when he is being gifted Trevor Lawrence as his first player. You know, he has he has a lot of, I think, built in advantages that some of these other college coaches who come in don't have right out of the shoot. So there will probably be an adjustment period for him. I'm not going to deny that. And some of the veteran players are probably going to be like, what's going on here? But that's not really what Jacksonville is at this point in time. They're one of these younger, hey, we're figuring things out and we're probably not contending this year kind of teams. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a lost year, but in the long run, does it work out? So I can no. s- I, I can in the see long it run, out, it does though. not work out. I could see it, it work the, out. It, in, in the long run, it does not work out. If Trevor Lawrence is great, if Trevor Lawrence is a Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe that maybe that's enough. 
But this this approach will, will not work out. Absolutely will not work out. I'm okay doubting an, an expatriate coach because it has never worked elsewhere. But I, I, I think with Meyer, I am still going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I, I, I think that there is a chance for it to work. They're in a bad division, too. You know? Win- winner. Tebow. <laughs> Tim Tebow was 26-3 and three in special teams blocking assignments. That, and it was one of the things that earned him a roster spot. See, now that, Why is Tebow on the field? Now that, that's a good question. That is a good question. And especially at the end of training camp, if all of a sudden they're going to be like, wait, wait a second, so Tebow, Tebow made it? Well, he was 25-0 and, and, oh, and it was blocking assignments. He was going up against defensive backs. Yeah, well. Harry High School. Harry High School. It is Danny Gallant. We'll bring in Brock Hewitt, see what he has to say next.